Hello and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm talking about the most famous Canadian to participate in the Spanish Civil War, Dr. Norman Bethune. And just a warning, some of the descriptions of warfare and bombings in today's episode are fairly graphic. wasn't just the most famous Canadian volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. He is considered one of the most famous Canadians of all time. If you've never heard of Bethune, this might be surprising. So I'll start off with the briefest bio of Norman Bethune. In the 1930s, Bethune was a prestigious thoracic surgeon working in Montreal. He was involved in many leftist and cultural communities, and he was a poet and artist in his own right. When the war broke out in Spain, he collaborated with the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy to organize medical support for the Spanish Republicans. He left for Spain in 1936 and contributed his medical skills to the Republican effort. He was particularly well known for his innovative blood transfusion techniques, which enabled him and his team to bring blood from Spanish citizens directly to soldiers. He returned to Canada before the war ended, under slightly mysterious circumstances, and toured the country giving speeches about the Civil War, raising funds, and recruiting support for the Republican effort. By 1939, he had turned his attention from Spain to China, where a communist regime was under attack by Japanese troops. He traveled to China and worked as a field doctor. Bethune's commitment to communism and the Chinese people was noted. And when Bethune died in China of an infection, his contribution to the country was deeply honored. His name and story have been widely circulated in China and given China's population. This ensures that he is, at least quantitatively, the most famous Canadian. He's continued to fascinate people in Canada and abroad. There are dozens of biographies written about him, including one by our former Governor General Adrian Clarkson. He has inspired poems, plays, novels, and movies, including not one, but two films starring Donald Sutherland as Norman Bethune. There are buildings, schools, statues, and streets named for him, and you can visit his home in Gravenhurst, Ontario, which is now a National Historic Site. As a young man, he said, I'm going to find something I can do for the human race, something great. And greatness he achieved. He gave all he had and all he could give to the cause of the betterment of the people of the world. In the Spanish Civil War, he made what many people think was the greatest single contribution to military medicine. Oddly enough, he is largely unknown to his countrymen. He's a legend in China, you know. No other Canadian is known to one billion, one half, you know, one and a half billion people. All Chinese know Norman Bethune. Ba Yun is his name in Chinese. And Bethune was bitter about Canada. And yet a few days later, he wrote, Bethune wrote in a letter, um, that his mission was financed chiefly with American money to China. And yet, he said, we're all Canadians. Mm -hmm. And he was proud of it. I think the impact is going to come as Canada begins to realize that they harbored and nourished one of the great saints of our century. But Dr. Norman Bethune was far from a saint. Bethune's life was so controversial, and the character of Bethune was so controversial, 
that it's only normal that it should raise this controversy. Now, when you want to portray it. Dr. Bethune, a fighter, a lover, a healer, a hero. That was a montage of several clips from radio and video documentaries and interviews about Norman Bethune. You can see a full list of those voices and their sources on our show notes at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. Those clips and voices give you an idea of how vast and varied Bethune's legacy is. But today we're going to hear from one voice. I'm joined by Kevin Lavangi, who is currently research assistant on Canada and the Spanish Civil War. When we first recorded this interview back in August, Kevin was working on his master's degree. He has since graduated and come to join us on the project again, and we're so happy to have him back. And I anticipate he'll be on many future episodes helping me talk about complicated and fascinating and exciting cultural and political histories of Canada and the Spanish Civil War. My name's Kevin Levanji. I'm finishing a, a master's of English right now, kind of as we speak. My master's research project is on Norman Bethune, specifically his uh, his aesthetic theory, I guess, that he that he wrote in Madrid in 1937. And that's really closely related to the different ways his legacy has kind of been picked up and I would say distorted by a few different people over the years and, and the Canadian government in particular. So I, nice. think, uh, I think we have a fair amount of stuff we could uh, cover a lot of different directions. Totally. Do you want to start by giving like a brief biography of him? Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about this a little bit last night. And, uh, and one of the things that I guess I find interesting about Bethune is that he has or had, I guess, a life that was very attractive to biographers because it fits into all these really kind of like conventional tropes about this. He had this overbearing father who was a, a Presbyterian minister and, you know, shoved his children's face faces into the dirt to teach them humility. He grew up in kind of throughout Ontario, a little bit of time in northern-ish Ontario. He was born in Gravenhurst, which is where there's a memorial house now and all kinds of funny looking statues that I'll hope to get to see someday soon. Yeah, so then he he went to medical school at the University of, of Toronto and was interrupted by the First World War. So he was a stretcher bearer in the First World War and was wounded severely enough that he um, came back to Canada. And there's kind of this this interesting, like one of those perfect biographical moments where he was walking down the street after he'd recovered. And I think this was maybe 1916, 1917. And a woman came up to him and pinned like a, a white lily to his lapel to show that he was a coward for not being in Europe at that at that time. So he responded by immediately joining the Navy as a surgeon and worked on a, an aircraft carrier. From there, he married Francis Campbell Penny, who's like another, again, another perfect kind of screen snapshot, I guess, of, of his life is that they were married three different times, I think, and had these very tumultuous divorces and a kind of complicated uh, relationship that people really like to focus on. And they ended up traveling across Europe and spending all of her inheritance. She was from a fairly uh, wealthy Scottish family. Uh, and then he convinced her that they could make more money if they moved to Detroit. So he became uh, mostly, I think, a family doctor in Detroit. Okay. And uh, that's where he contracted tuberculosis, went to 
a sanatorium and was very convinced that he was going to die. This is in the, I think by now it's the late 1920s. Um, okay. And and a lot of people uh, attribute that, that particular moment of going to the, the sanatorium as a real turning point in his life where he became more introspective, I guess. He, they, they forced him to become more introspective by, with all the bed rest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's when he, he decided that he was going to try to find, you know, a cure or at least help to manage tuberculosis. And yeah, that's, that's where he becomes a chest surgeon, a thoracic surgeon. And he, at some point, you know, performs a lung collapse therapy on himself to, to try to help heal his, his tubercular lungs. Whoa. Yeah. That's again, another, another great moment in, in all, across all these biographies that people like to, like the, through, there's all these like great, like colorful stories. I mean, he, he was also known as a very snappy dresser throughout this entire period and wore, you know, someone talks about him wearing, you know, purple pants and a yellow blazer. And uh, he would, you know, write uh, clever things that he and his friends said, paint them all over the walls of his apartment and that sort of thing. Lend out books and then immediately like demand them back and, you know, give, <laughs> give people gifts and then say that they were actually, that he was just, you know, loaning them something and, and reclaim it very quickly. So I'm guessing that his father's lessons in humility didn't really stick. I don't think so. I think they had the opposite effects, which which is sort of predictable in one sense. I don't think, uh, yeah, that either really really breaks you or uh, or you end up going in the opposite direction. So yeah, he go he moves to Montreal, and from there he really starts getting interested in what we'd now call, I guess, the social determinants of health, and okay. sees. This, there's this famous quote at the time. I think it was actually first attributed to his supervisor at the Royal Victoria Hospital in in Montreal, which is attached to McGill. Something along the lines of, you know, there are two different uh, types of tuberculosis. The, you know, the rich man's and the poor man's. The rich man gets better and the poor man dies. And that, I think that's really where you see Bethune start to get interested in kind of politics. And that leads him to go to the Soviet Union in 1935, Ostensibly, he went to go to a physiology conference that was run by Pavlov. Of Pavlov's dog. Yeah, of Pavlov's dog, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my extent of, of my knowledge of Pavlov. But, uh, and I guess he skipped most of the, the conference to kind of wander around Moscow and see their sanatoriums, see kind of their public health practices. And as much as he, he had a lot of criticisms of the Soviet Union at the time, he also saw their kind of health care system as much more advanced to the, the private uh, private practice in Canada and saw that their kind of concern for, I guess, what we, you know, holistic well-being, if you want to put it that way, was the solution to the, the problem of tuberculosis. And it's at this period where he's, you know, talking to Marion Dale Scott a lot about, about politics and about art. And she, uh, they met on the boat back from Moscow, I believe she was going to London at the time. And uh, she was a, a painter and married to F.R. Scott at the time, who was, you know, a, a big CCFer, a uh, big League for Social Reconstruction guy, big social democrat at the time, and a poet in his own right, but probably most famous as a poet. F.R. Scott and Bethune didn't get along very well, mostly because Marion Dale Scott and Bethune had kind of an on and off pseudo relationship for a number of years, I guess, from 1935 until he, he died in, in 39. And that's also a very complicated, thrilling thread that you can follow throughout his life if you want. Yeah. And she was really instrumental in introducing him to kind of more radical political thought. I think she was 
considerably to the left of her husband at the time is mm -hmm. is the impression that I've gotten and really taught him uh taught Bethune a lot about kind of more Marxist theory that was fairly difficult to actually get your hands on at the time in Canada and so he joins the Communist Party in uh late 1935 and from there it's kind of just almost a, a very natural progression to go to Spain, I think, because he's looking for something to do and sees this as a really good way to, I guess, put his, uh, put his theory into practice, put his, his newfound kind of ideology into practice. Yeah. And he already has battlefield medical experience. And... Yeah, absolutely. And he's kind of a, an adventurous guy. I think that you yeah. can't really discount that element of, of motivation for everyone who went to Spain, I think. Yeah. Is, uh, went to Spain all by himself, basically. Had a little bit of help from the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy, which at the time was essentially non-existent. There was an ad in, ad in a newspaper that he followed up on and then uh, kind of helped found the committee himself. So, Okay, and then once he's there, he sets up the blood transfusion service. Yeah, he shops around throughout Madrid in particular to try to see if anyone wants him as a, as a doctor. No one does. He doesn't speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah, that would be a barrier. <laughs> it was a big barrier. There were already a lot of physicians who were in the country. It was, I think like, that had something to do with like the class breakdown of how the, uh, the Spanish Civil War's kind of like battle lines were drawn, where a lot of the kind of what we'd call like petty bourgeois people, doctors, uh, ended up on the side of the Republicans versus, you know, the big landlords on the other side. So yeah, so he founds this blood transfusion unit, and his influences are a little spotty, I think. Uh, Archibald, who was his kind of supervisor uh, in in Montreal, had done some pioneering blood transfusion work during the First World War, and then, and I guess the method of preservation of the blood with some sort of sodium citrate or something like that was the same method as before. Okay. And yeah, he put this into practice in in Madrid, and a few other Canadians, Hazen Seiss, Henning Sorosin in, in particular, helped him out. And what were their backgrounds? I don't really know. They were not suited for this at all. They were, uh, <laughs> Henning Zorzen was in, in insurance, I think. Yeah. And he was a writer. I think Perfect. he went, he went to Spain with the understanding that he was going to write a lot for New Commonwealth. Um, one of the, like the popular fun kind of yeah. magazines, I guess CCF magazines. And yeah, Bethune ended up kind of roping him in because he spoke a number of languages. Spanish in particular was very useful as you'd imagine. And Hazen Seiss did that's another weird sort of story about Bethune just showing up at his apartment in London because he was bouncing back between Paris and, and Madrid and London trying to get supplies and, and kind of drum up support. And Seiss was a, an architect and like quite, okay. a, quite a kind of inventive architect and had been working with you know, a number of really prominent ones at the time. And yeah, he just really liked Bethune and he thought he was very personable and had been, <laughs> had been thinking about the Spanish Civil War a lot. So yeah, uh, personable is probably the wrong word. Thought he had a big personality, an attractive personality. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And then, so he works in Spain for a while, running the blood transfusion clinic. And then what happened? So yeah, that's the, the other really weird thing is that, especially in the, my kind of imagination that his time in Spain like is, is important and... and very lengthy and in reality it was like seven months he was only in, oh, wow. in spain for seven yeah, months i think seven. yeah yeah and then he so there's some sort of like personality clashes at the institute and there's in the early days they basically did whatever they wanted because they had quite a bit of uh, funding from the 
Canadian donors and the the Spanish military was effectively made up of of different trade unions and different political parties and you mean like the Republican military the Republican yeah. military was was made up of just anyone who would who could help yeah. a series of militias and that sort of thing so it was very difficult to kind of discern who was in charge of anything so if you wanted to operate on your own that was perfectly fine but as the kind of bureaucracy centralized and and made sure that there was a clear change command and that sort of thing that didn't work super well for Bethune, partly because he didn't speak Spanish again, and that was a major issue. And um, so, yeah, personality clashes with uh, a lot of the other doctors who worked at the Institute and with some of the other Canadians made it so that he ended up leaving in, I think, June, early June of, of 1937 and coming back to Canada to do this really sort of incredible propaganda tour across Canada and the U.S. as well, actually, and raised oh, wow. a good deal of money. Some really interesting newspaper clippings and uh, and kind of an interesting tightrope he's walking between saying, you know, I am, I'm interested in, you know, the social causes of illness and I'm interested in fighting fascism, but no, I'm not a communist and so on and so forth. And then, you know, eventually he gets baited one too many times at a, one of these speeches and declares, yes, I'm a communist. And of course, this alienates a lot of the, the kind of more well-to-do and just more religious all kinds of people alienates all kinds of people across the country there was some like the, the anti-communism at the time was was really you know strident i mean the section 98 had outlawed the communist party and thrown all of the leaders in jail there was just kind of a lot of persecution across across the country for anyone who wanted to, to organize in any form and would always be associated with the communist party so bethune really couldn't keep his mouth shut when he should have <laughs> but uh really hated doing the speaking tour i guess is the is what it comes down to uh, despite it being i think a fairly useful thing for him to do so he's come back from spain he's touring he's not enjoying it i think he calls out the canadian government directly right one of his major kind of focuses on the tour was how the policy of neutrality on their part on the canadian government's part as well as their policy of making it illegal to volunteer to go to spain but does he specifically call out the prime minister for meeting with Hitler? That's a good question. I, I think so. Okay. I think I've seen that in newspaper clippings, but I wasn't, I can't really remember. Because he was so adamant about, it was so important for, I think, the popular front at the time, and particularly for the Communist Party, um, to emphasize how, like, finance capital and the particular form of, of capitalism of the 1930s was, like, tending towards fascism. Mm-hmm. And, and that there was kind of no way of reversing this tendency without having a, a revolution, without totally overturning the social and economic system. So I think that there was, it was very important to draw parallels between what was happening in, in Canada, mostly on a provincial level, I think. Uh, the yeah. Premier of Ontario, I think it was Hepburn, I think his name was, was particularly kind of fascist in a lot of his, his methods and, and yeah. kind of combining elements of left and right. And in Quebec too, yeah, Duplessis and Arcand, you know, there were some real, there were some, a lot of actual fetches running around in the, the 1930s. So yeah, no, that's, that's a, a very good point too, is this very kind of strident criticism of the Canadian, Canadian government and their relationship to fascism. Yeah, which feels pretty familiar right now. <laughs> it does, it does, yeah. Yeah, King's relationship with, uh, with Hitler was of particular note. Do you know if during this tour, he's also speaking about China? Yeah, he was. He was because he was talking about the three, you know, this is, we're reaching the third stage of the global war against fascism. And he first talks about 
the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, which I think was 1931. And then he talks about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. Okay. And then he talked about Spain and he's, and he's relating all three of these as, as like intimately connected and saying, you know, this is part of a uh, like growing global war. So he, I know in at least that instance, he, he talked about it, but I know he had been, he was reading a lot on the tour. Apparently he had almost no clothing or like personal effects in his trunk. He just carried around like communist literature and uh, oh, wow. newspapers, uh, copies of, of Marx and that sort of thing. And I know he was reading Agnes Smedley's, Smedley's Red Star Over China, I think it was called, okay. which is about, about Mao. Yeah, that, that's such a good image. He's so unbelievable. <laughs> like, he's so cinematic, even when you're just talking about he's him. He's so, so much larger than life. And then he does go to China and meets Mao in a cave. I don't know much about his time in China. <laughs> it's, it's pretty incredible, yeah. He... The time in China was even more like absurd and kind of a comedy of errors than than time in in Spain in a lot of ways. But I guess it also saw him become considerably more like heroic in, in a lot of senses. He yeah, he I think it was sort of a joint endeavor between the Canadian and American committees to against war and fascism or for for peace and democracy, whichever name they were under at the time. Probably the League Against War and Fascism. I think yeah. so. And I and I know they changed they changed later on to be a committee for peace and democracy because they wanted to be a, a positive force, not just a negative one. But yeah, with no change in their mission or anything like that. <laughs> so yeah, so he goes he goes to, to China and ends up working with Mao's Eighth Route Army, who were in a very precarious position because they were both they were tolerated as allies by the the nationalist uh, Chinese government, who was they were also under attack from Imperial Japan, but they were very much being kind of choked out over the longer period by this by this government and and literally starved uh, of particularly food but also kind of medical supplies there was a a pretty serious embargo going on that Bethune talks about a couple times so they really couldn't get the the medical supplies they needed uh, of any sort and he uh he was the only I would say this is a little bit complicated but I would say he's probably the only western trained physician in uh, an area that had something like 13 million people. Oh, wow. I've, I've, I've seen a few times people say he was the only trained physician, but that doesn't seem quite right. I think yeah. if you had 13 million people, you would have a few doctors. So. Yeah. But he was really the only one who knew all that much about, I think, surgery and especially about battlefield medicine. So he saw it as very important to get medical uh, aid as close to the front as possible and was running kind of mobile uh, surgical clinics. And he was training dozens of doctors and nurses from like kind of peasant people from the area to become I guess medical professionals and it would take you know I think it was something like six months to become a doctor and three months to become a nurse yeah and he was he was insistent on having like a static campus but the whole tactic of of Mao's army was to keep moving so they built a campus and of course it was destroyed within a couple weeks and he was upset but well, it's hard to be a mobile medical clinic and a static campus at the same time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Pretty hard to teach people on the run as well, I think. But. Yeah. And this is really the period that's like, not as relevant to our purposes, but it is so important in Bethune's mythology. Um, yeah. Because in China, he's, I think people say the most kind of popular uh, Westerner and by far uh, the most popular Canadian. And it's because of his time in China that he's he's known as the most famous Canadian 
with kind of a wry smile on the yeah. face of whoever's saying that because <laughs> not too many Canadians know who he, he is. But during the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, Mao popularized and made mandatory reading uh, of an essay that he wrote called uh, In Memory of Norman Bethune, a very short essay. He kind of excerpted it as well and, and put it in the Little Red Book. So, yeah. you know, I don't know how many copies of the Little Red Book there are, but uh, I assume more than a billion, probably a couple yeah. billion floating wow. around. And that means that whoever's read the Little Red Book from cover to cover has read about Norman Bethune. And then he became sick with an infection? So, yeah, because I think largely because um, there was so little medical care, infections were, were very widespread. So there was an infected wound uh, that a soldier had because he hadn't had proper medical care quickly enough. And Bethune was operating on him without gloves because they didn't have, they didn't have gloves. And he cut his hand while operating, got some of the infected material from the infected wound on his hand and uh, died of septicemia a few days later. Basically, it sounds like if he had been eating properly, and sleeping enough, he probably would have been able to survive this uh, this infection because it wasn't really that serious of a wound. But he was really insistent on not eating any more than anyone else in the army. Mm-hmm. He he thought that that was it was very important for him to you know not be seen as this kind of drastically different figure than anyone else in the who had volunteered with the army. Yeah, and so he kind of dies because of his own like it's fulfilling the prophecy of the social medicine, right? Because if he had been properly fed and rested, he would have been able to fight it off. Yeah, and, and it's his own egalitarianism that yeah. does him in, in, in a sense. So in, in a sense, I think that's probably what he would have wanted as well. You know, there's, there's this, he, was, he appears to have been someone who really did understand the symbol, like the importance of the symbolic gestures that he was always mm-hmm. like engaged in. And I think that that would have been important to him for his own legacy, probably. So, although that's sort of a weird thing to speculate about. So <laughs> try to keep that to a minimum. How did you first learn about Bethune? I first learned about Bethune in a very kind of strange way. I was in a high school theater arts class, which I needed to take to graduate. And I was flipping through like a a big binder of monologues. Mm -hmm. And they had the monologue without like any context whatsoever. It was not clear what play this was from. It was not clear who wrote it. (laughs) And uh, it was a section of the monologue about the Malaga to Elmeria kind of refugee retreat, I guess you could call it, with all the refugees fleeing from Malaga to Elmeria anyway, which is something like 200 kilometers with a 500 foot difference in like from sea level to like these mountains. And they're they're fleeing, like 100,000 people were fleeing from a fascist offensive. They were totally exposed to shelling from ships along the coast. They were totally exposed to like fascist bombers. There was no, they essentially had no support from the Republican military whatsoever. And they, they were all civilians and people were just, you know, dying everywhere. And this, this monologue is, is Bethune talking about helping people as they went along. Picking them up in the ambulance, driving them back. At one point, a series of Republican planes crash in the uh, ocean. And Bethune wades out and, you know, ties off wounds with tourniquets and uh, gives blood transfusions like India. It's, wow. it's kind of this incredible, incredible moment. And what's really cool about this account and this particular monologue is that 
I didn't know this at the time, but it was actually from one of the pamphlets that Bethune wrote. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was just going to say, there's a really intense monologue about this in the second Donald Sutherland film. I wonder if it um, has any crossover, like if it's also taken from one of his pamphlets. It really should be, yeah, even if it isn't, uh, because it's The Crime on the Road is really kind of incredibly written, which might be on the website, if I'm not sure. Um, if it's not, I will add it before I aired this podcast. And there's some some really excellent photos in there, too, from mm-hmm. Hayes and Sice, who is also in the blood transfusion unit. We drove south along the coast to Malaga, because that was where the front was. That was where we were needed. Malaga was being attacked by mechanized Italian and nationalist units. We were no more than 10 miles outside of Almeria, and we saw the first of the refugees from Malaga. Further south we went, the more pitiful the sights became. Children. We counted 5,000 children under the age of 10. A thousand without shoes. Most of them clad only in a single garment. They were slung over their mother's shoulders or clinging to her hands. We began to ferry them back to Almeria. At first we, we decided to take only mothers and children. But then the separation between fathers and children, husbands and wives, became too cruel to bear. So we decided to take the families with the largest numbers of small children and those solitary children without parents, of which there were hundreds. We worked in shifts for three days and three nights. And when we were finished, Almeria was swollen to twice its size. 40,000 exhausted people in their haven of safety, sleeping in the main street in the center of town, huddled together so closely you could hardly move. That night, those 40,000 people were bombed by German and Italian fascist warplanes. Those warplanes did not choose to bomb the battleship in the harbor. They did not choose to bomb the army barracks on the outskirts of Almeria. They chose to bomb those 40,000 people in the open center of that helpless town. They bombed the streets into a shambles of dead and dying. I picked up three dead children in front of the headquarters of the Provincial Committee for the Evacuation of Refugees, where they had been standing in a great queue, waiting for the first food that they would have had for four days a cup of preserved milk, and a piece of dried bread. As darkness fell, the moans of those wounded children, the shrieks of the agonized mothers, and the curses of the men rose in a masked cry, higher and higher, to a pitch of intolerable intensity. is going to answer that cry. Who is going to stop that fascist beast that has been unleashed upon this world? Who? If it is not you, who? If it is not you, 
it will be no one. And if it is no one, then that cry from Almeria will be your cry. And when it is your cry, who will answer you? So yeah, that was my first, my first exposure uh, to Pithin. And then obviously when I started working on the, the Spanish Civil War project, Bard Fotor said, how would you like to become the in-house Norman Bethune expert? <laughs> he said that to you. He did. That, I think that is exactly how he put it as well. <laughs> I'm so glad that you are, so that I don't have to be. <laughs> uh, and I said, sure, not really knowing what I was getting myself into at the time. And I wrote a couple of case studies and then decided that not enough people had written about this. I would say maybe... Critically is the wrong word. I would say academically in a lot of senses. Okay. And I think, and that also that a lot of the people who've covered Bethune stuff haven't done it with a, much of a familiarity with, or not, not much of a familiarity, with a specific familiarity with the 1930s or with leftist theory or with kind of the cultural stuff that was going on at the time. Yeah. So so there's like some, there's some blind spots when you're when you're reading over some of the some of the biographies, some of the the different portrayals. So I thought that that was a, a good place for me to kind of tap into. And, and it's a great way to talk about the ways in which the Canadian state intervenes in culture and mm-hmm. sort of stuff that I, that I find really interesting. So, so do you want to describe some of your thesis? It's called An Apology for Writing Theory. And it's about this letter that Bethune wrote from Madrid, May 5th, 1937, um, although that date's also contentious. But uh, so, and so he writes this, he writes this letter to Marion Dale Scott describing how he, he feels about art essentially, uh, because he, he was a painter and, and a poet in his own right. And art was very important to him and to his self-conception, I would say. So this is, it's this very strange, strange piece of writing where he, says it's to his friends in Canada at the very top. And, and it seems to be kind of addressed to a large number of people. All kinds of the biographies have said it's uh, addressed to Marion Dale Scott and other friends. And others have said it was a piece meant for publication uh, in Canada without okay. any more detail. And then some have said it was meant for publication in the, the New Frontier magazine. Uh, and then some have said it was published in New Frontier, <laughs> which is yeah. not true. Yeah. I think I've been asked to check that like five times. Yeah, I, I've checked in two or three different places. I think I can conclusively say it is not there. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about the piece in, in terms of the genre is that people have, I would say, misinterpreted uh, the genre with some pretty serious kind of implications for their reading of the piece because uh, people read it as exclusively kind of a personal artist, like an artist statement from Bethune, or they read it as incoherent they read it as you know stylistically uh, choppy they read it as uh, theoretically yeah incoherent meaningless mm-hmm. and say that it's, it's evidence of his lack of familiarity with marxist thought because it's very much i would argue it's a, it's a marxist theory of aesthetics that he's laying out but people say because it's in their eyes so poorly written it must be proof that he he didn't actually know anything about about uh, communist theory yeah, and, and when you when you start to argue that it's a letter just sent to friends, I think that means you read it very differently than if mm-hmm. it's a, a letter meant for publication in New Frontier. Yeah, and it says New Frontier at the top of the first page, which a lot of people <laughs> seem to have lost in the shuffle over the years too. He wrote that? It it's a typed it's a typed letter. 
Okay. And even before it says to my friends in Canada, at the top on the right hand side, it says New Frontier. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me because he did have a letter published in New Frontier probably before that, where he's like describing the blood transfusion itself. So Yeah, absolutely. And he he had been requesting copies of New Frontier. Mm-hmm. Like there's letters of him saying, like, can I get can I get my hands on some some reading material from Canada and the US. So, so yeah, and basically my, my reading of the article or of the piece, the, the text, whatever you want to call it, I call it a lot of different things, is that it's very closely connected to theories of socialist realism in the 1930s. Okay. So if you read kind of the big proponents of socialist realism, like Lundachersky, who was the, the Soviet cultural minister, it's, it's, you can kind of like track the arguments alongside each other and they're, they're very similar. You can look at other uh, articulations of socialist realism in Masses magazine in Canada in the 1930s and see that it's, it's very similar. Uh, Ed Cecil Smith, who you know was a, a big uh, kind of cultural figure on the left in, yeah. in Canada and ended up leading the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion in, in Spain, has a, an article about socialist realist aesthetic theory that, that I read very like closely alongside mm-hmm. apology and, and say, yeah, these have a lot of connections. So basically I've been, I frame it as, as turning to Bethune's aesthetic theory as a way of thinking about him as someone who was very closely tied to, to Marxist debates in the 1930s, okay. uh, despite what people might want you to think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's mostly it. Like I choose, I, I sort of frame the whole conversation about apology in terms of the kind of erasure of, or, or yeah, erasure is probably the right word, of Bethune's knowledge of Marxist and communist theory, because that's um, one biographer, Larry Hennant, says that Bethune wasn't a real communist because he didn't come. Okay, that's editorializing on my part. He said that he was not a very serious communist because he didn't come to communism through a deep theoretical study. He calls him a humanist in a red cape. Okay. Which I think is a very kind of strange. I've seized on that turn of phrase, I guess. And, and yeah. I'm just, yeah. Turning to this aesthetic theory as a way of, of repoliticizing Bethune, which okay. I, I acknowledge throughout the paper, is a little bit absurd when he joined the Communist Party, fought in Spain and China, and, you know, raised tens of thousands of dollars for, like, this anti-fascist cause when, like, you don't, you don't turn to aesthetic theory to repoliticize someone who did all those things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, all, all that proof is, yeah, exactly. All that proof is already there. Yeah. And it's an interesting critique from Hannah because I know that there was like widespread schools and education on Marxist theory, but so many people at that time would have come through life experience or social work or organizing. And, and that's what you, that's the way that you should come to radical leftist thought and like especially not to be prescriptive I guess but especially like Marxist thought emphasizes like the unity of thought and action like yeah you know what I mean that there's no that this this idea of the distinction between praxis and theory is like a harmful one and that you need to yeah. that your theory needs to come out of your practice is mm-hmm. is so central to Marxist thought that it makes it a very silly objection I would say but I, I understand why people do it I mean they want to they have people have their own sort of political agendas and sometimes they're very explicit political agendas where they want to make Bethune more amenable to a Canadian nationalist political project 
in other cases, I think people just have their own political assumptions that inform their work in a way that leads them to minimize certain aspects of Bethune's life and play up others. And I, I, I do that too. I totally understand yeah. that. So yeah. it's, it's when it gets into, you know, the Canadian state using him for trade relations. And when it gets into Adrian Clarkson emphasizing how he was born out of the, you know, Canadian shield and like forged in adversity. Like that's the kind forged. of stuff. That, that's, the kind of, that's where I draw the line and say like, okay, we are approaching a, a level of politicization. That is, yeah. So he was recently in the news because Trudeau gave one of the medals with his face on them that was originally given by Trudeau Sr. to Mao. So that's another like trade relations move. What, what's what's your take on that? I, I think that, yeah, that's, I mean, extremely, extremely interesting. So his Trudeau Sr. was the one to open up uh, like diplomatic and trade relations with the People's Republic of China in the 1970s. And yeah, they ran off a whole bunch of medallions of Bethune's face and he gave one to Mao and yeah, Trudeau Jr. did the same thing. And like, partly I think that's interesting just because of like the, the father and son relationship there that like, <laughs> I don't know, there's all this emphasis on like, you know, the the communist regimes that like to have an undemocratic like allocation of, of, uh, of leadership, like, you know, oh yeah, you know, the Kim Jong-un and Kim Il-sung and all. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the two Trudeaus. So I think that's a great, I think that's a great image, uh, first of all. But yeah, I think that, I think that it's, it's really, really bizarre. It's so strange the way that this, this relationship around an internationalist figure has played out because, you know, China and Mao, Mao liked Bethune because he saw him as, as exemplifying what he called proletarian internationalism. And so like at the root, the authentic people's internationalism, while the Canadian state, you know, values his legacy for his internationalism, but I wouldn't say for his proletarian internationalism, I would say it's for, yeah. it's for the Canadian state's version of internationalism, which, which is, I would, which I argue is, you know, crucial to the, the ideology that, that underpins the ongoing existence of the Canadian state and its current kind of figuration because so many Canadians understand our national identity as being the international helpers, as being these peacekeepers. Yeah. Which the so was. He, he was. Yeah, and I would say that his his internationalism was like directly in conflict with the kind of internationalism that the Canadian state practices, you know, yeah. which involves resource extraction and that sort of thing. So yeah. that's yeah, that's I guess my that's what I think is so interesting. There's two different types of internationalism and, and they're very vastly different use to, to different types of people. Yeah. My favorite thing that, I, that I've kind of encountered about Bethune recently was there, there, are, there are two. The first is, is kind of throwaway, but it's just that I was, uh, I was looking at one of the you know, various books that I've had strewn around the apartment for the last however long, a long time. And uh, my girlfriend, Tessa, like look, looked over my shoulder at a, a picture of Bethune and was like, that's what he looks like? And I said, yeah, what did you think that he looked like? She said, I don't know, he just looks more stodgy than I thought he would. Yeah. <laughs> but that was very funny. There's, there's a story too about him and when he first gets to Madrid and he has, you know, a very closely shaved mustache and he walks kind of very upright and has a nice, nicely tailored suit. <laughs> I see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> And this militiaman stops him on the street and, you know, is accusing him of being a fascist spy. And of course he doesn't speak Spanish. So he's just kind of waving this guy off and goes up to his <laughs> room. And next thing you know, there's like, 
five or six militia members and a cop and like some security guy like all burst into his hotel room and you know they chat and everything's fine and then they leave and then Henning Sorison shows up and Bethune goes oh I have a letter for you and he hands the letter over and then the inspector bursts back into the room and grabs the letter and reads it and discovers that it's a love letter from Sorensen's girlfriend at home <laughs> and kind of sheepishly like folds it up and gives it back and walks away. And apparently Bethune shaved his mustache as a result of this yeah. escapade. Do you want to talk at all about Bethune as an artist? Before we get into that, I have a weird question. When he stayed at the sanatorium, was it the Trudeau sanatorium? It was the Trudeau Sanatorium. But yeah, so it was at, and it was at that sanatorium that he painted this kind of incredible series of murals that were in, included uh, little bits of poetry as well. And they were done in, I think, oil paint and then pastels and had some very kind of strange Gothic images like a, the angel of death cradling, you know, Bethune in his arms. And the tombstones of all of, of him and all of his housemates who were also all, all physicians uh, and they had like their dates of uh, dates of birth and projected dates of death okay so he was staying with other sick doctors yeah and i guess they had a lot of fun <laughs> as well as as well as dying uh Bethune kept smuggling in. This is again, we're i'm off on the garden path again but he would smuggle in like whiskey and like yeah. they had you know they had gin for if any ladies were present was uh, as well as <laughs> like, the classic, uh, <laughs> classic bassoon. But yeah, so he, he painted these amazing murals and like there was this huge saga to like find them over the last few years. Apparently they ended up at Fort Benning in, I think Carolina, like one of the Carolinas. Uh, okay. And then they went lost, they lost forever. I don't, yeah, the, that whole trajectory is a little mystifying to me, but someone found scans of them. So you can see them, I think you can see them online pretty easily. There are copies of them in uh, Larry Hennett's book, uh, The Politics of Passion, if you want to take a look at them there too. They're, they're pretty cool. And he, yeah, he later went on to get some some art training in, in Montreal. Out of his apartment, he ran this, yeah, the Montreal Children's Art Center or something alongside Marion Dale Scott and their friend oh. Fritz Brantner. Um, and it was actually, it, it's pretty cool. They, it was all free. It was mostly for, for children from kind of like a, a very poor neighborhood. And they emphasized creativity as kind of a form of personal development. Like it wasn't, they weren't interested in teaching like the kids technique so much. Like if, if, yeah. if someone was frustrated and wanted like some help about how to you know, paint a nose or whatever, they would come over and be like, okay, so here's how you paint a nose. But otherwise they were really just trying to get kids to like put, uh, put paint to paper. They, they, mostly used Bethune's funds and like his big apartment. But yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And I guess that played a big role in this kind of ongoing relationship with art throughout his life. He wrote some short stories too. Oh, well. wow. Um, yeah, one called The Dud, which is an interesting, it's written in, in uh, when he was in China. And it's about an old, an old man who's planning his field and finds a finds a bomb, an unexploded bomb, and digs it up and puts it in his wheelbarrow. And it takes him, I think, all day to move it across the wheelbarrow and get it. He wants to go find the Red Army to give them this bomb because he thinks it'll help. He wants he wants to help essentially, and yeah. it's this 
and he he gets it to the soldiers and you know a couple of them laugh because it's it's a dud it's a useless bomb it's, it's not going to be of any service to them but then you know one of their comrades like you know gives them a, a look and says you know like thanks this guy very profusely and like sends him on his way and it's this really it's this very sweet kind of strange not very socialist realist piece just about like this guy's like failure but they also like me anyway they also make him feel good they're just decent to him in an interesting way and then he, yeah he wrote another one that new frontier rejected <laughs> about this guy who gets into a political argument while drinking with one of his friends and then uh it's called encounter and he goes out onto the street and starts yelling at someone and lecturing him about politics and then at the end of the story you find out that this person is actually a dog who's yelling at in the street that sounds like that could happen to many people i know <laughs> absolutely i yeah i am not above that i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. And then, of course, there's Red Moon, which is probably the most the most famous of, of Bethune's poems, mostly because yeah. all the other ones were sent to Marion Dale Scott and uh, were love poems. Um, and are you willing to read Red Moon for us? I am. Red Moon. And this same pallid moon tonight, which rides so quietly, clear and high, the mirror of our pale and troubled gaze raised to the cool Canadian sky, Above the shattered Spanish mountain tops, last night rose low and wild and red, reflecting back from her illumined shield the blood bespattered faces of the dead. To that pale disk we raise our clenched fists, and to those nameless dead our vows renew. Comrades who fought for freedom in the future world, who died for us, we will remember you. What can we learn from Bethune that would help us fight fascism today? Because one of the things I've been thinking about while I prepare this podcast is how a lot of the attention and enthusiasm for Bethune seems invested in him as a romantic hero. And maybe that takes away from the kind of collective action that he himself was really interested in. No, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. Something that immediately leaps to mind is a phrase that, that he used in his, one of his uh, radio broadcasts from, from Madrid, uh, where he, he talks about practical international comradeship. And yeah, I think, I guess my, my answer hinges on that concept of internationalism as well. The internationalism with which we oppose narrow patriotism is, is, what, uh, is what Mao called it. And it's, it's this, I guess, the idea that looking for national solutions to international problems, such as fascism, such as white supremacy, such as imperialism, are not going to cut it. And so this, I think this even goes beyond the, the kind of individual collective divide to say, like, we can't be limited to thinking about, you know, a national political party, uh, or even a, a, a national movement to resist fascism that's going, that's going to save us. I think that so much violence that's mobilized by kind of imperialist Western states. And I include, I include Canada in that conception in that, in that uh, category, I should say is directed elsewhere in the world. And I think that that opposing fascism at, at home really begins with opposing the kind of uh, military adventurism that has killed so many people around the world, particularly in the middle East, because we can't, we can't cede that kind of rhetorical territory about, you know, uh, Islamism. We can't 
cede that kind of rhetorical territory to the Canadian and, and American states when they want to kind of whip up frenzy for a war yeah. and then and then be surprised when that results in you know hate and violence at home as well mm-hmm. so i think that i think that that's where this concept of internationalism uh, comes in so so closely we can't there's no there's no half measure stuff fascism i guess we need to stop kind of this this global war machine before we can yeah uh, and that would probably include thinking about how canada right now is benefiting from selling weapons in saudi arabia yeah and that's that's such that's something that you know Bethune would have readily spoken about on his uh, his trans North American tour. I'm sure Canadian pointing out Canadian hypocrisy is uh, definitely a, a valuable legacy that we can uh, we can try to mobilize. Yeah, and it also makes me think that fascism and white supremacy are so good at internationalism. They they've got that kind of down. So in order to resist them, you gotta learn how to work across borders as well yeah and that's the like militarism fascism white supremacy capitalism patriarchy like these are ultimately i think a single issue (laughs) like that's so and that's something that wouldn't be put i think so clearly in uh in some of the writings from the the 1930s but i think that in others you can find real traces of, of that kind of analysis maybe maybe the parting resolution here is that everyone should read uh, Norman Bethune's Wounds, which he wrote in China. Um, okay. Where he... okay, no, that's really, really excellent. Um, he's talking about opposing, you know, the imperialists, the capitalists, who uh, those are the men that make the wounds is ultimately his, his resolution. And that's very much, it's like strikes a really nice chord about between, you know, the need to resist uh, fascism in a very practical sense in, in, in a military sense in China at that time, but then also acknowledge that like the, the Japanese soldiers that you're fighting against aren't the real enemy. The ongoing use of, of medical metaphors in, in relationship to, to fascism is a... Doesn't he describe fascism as an infection or a disease? Yeah, or like cancer, something like that, I think, yeah. Okay, any last thoughts on Bethune? I think that that just what does it. I think if you if you want to learn more about Bethune, the the real book to read is Roderick and Sharon Stewart's Phoenix. It's extremely well researched. It's the culmination of I think forty five years of research on Bethune. Wow. Uh, yeah, because by... it wasn't his first. What well, wasn't Roderick Stewart's first book, right? No, it's his fifth, maybe fourth or fifth. Um, Your first book on Bethune. Doesn't he have more than one? Sorry, it's his fourth or fifth book on Bethune. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, oh it's, 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 it's long. It's 400, 400 pages or so. Um, okay. And if you want to learn more about Bethune, you can also read Kevin's case studies. You can. You can. Those are. <laughs> if you don't have time to read 400 books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can also read Bethune in Spain, which Roger Stewart wrote with a, a guy from Spain. Uh, and it's 130 pages or something. I read it last night in preparation for the, uh, for the podcast today. So. <laughs> nice. So thank you so much for talking. Thank you for having me on. That was Kevin Lavangie discussing the life and legacy of Dr. Norman Bethune. Kevin has since finished his master's, including his project on Bethune. So congratulations, Kevin. You can find out more about Bethune by reading Kevin's case studies on our website at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash case hyphen studies. Today's episode was produced by me, Karina Mixon, and hosted by me and Kevin Lavangie. We are supported by 
The Canada and the Spanish Civil War Project, run by Emily Robbins-Sharp and Bart Fatour, and we are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. You can find all the sources we referenced today in our show notes at SpanishCivilWar.ca podcast. And here's a list of the voices that you heard in that opening montage. The first voice was Michael Enright from the CBC radio show Rewind, then Lister Sinclair from the National Film Board documentary Bethune, Wilder Penfield from the same documentary, George Hatem from CBC Sunday Night, Adrian Clarkson from the CBC show The Next Chapter, Roderick Stewart from the CBC show The Arts in Review, Ted Allen from the documentary Bethune, Nicholas Clermont from a Daily Network news clip, and a clip from the movie trailer for Bethune, The Making of a Hero, the 1990 Bethune biopic. The long monologue was performed by Donald Sutherland in the 1977 film Bethune. The monologue was in fact adapted from Bethune's 1937 pamphlet, Crime on the Road, which you can also read on our website. Our intro music was Libertad by Iriarte and Pazoa, and is from the Free Music Archive. Our credit song for this episode was Spanish Bombs by The Clash. You can follow along with the podcast and project on Twitter at Canada SCW. And you can get in contact with me through Twitter, through our website, or through email. My email address is karina.mickelson at dal.ca. That's K-A-A-R-I-N-A dot M-I-K-A-L-S-O-N at dal.ca. I'll be back in two weeks to talk about communism and print culture in Canada during the 1930s with Andrea Hissenbank. So listen in. Inside